Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books, a fine publication. Joining me today is my co-host, Tom Lutz. Hi, Tom. How are you today? Very good. Thank you, Lori. We're here in the studio with one of our favorite authors, Nicholson Baker. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you for coming in. Oh, gee, I'm so happy to be here. His new book is called Substitute. It is about his experience of substitute teaching, which is chock full of amazing anecdotes, which we will discuss. And with us is Evan Kindley, who's writing about the book for The Nation and is an editor at Los Angeles Review of Books. Hi, nice to be here. What were you looking to find when you got the idea to do this book? Well, I had been warned by my son when I said, I think I want to be a substitute teacher because I don't know what the inside of classes are like now, and I want to write a book about education. He said, they'll crush you. He was in high school. <laughs> they will, you know. So I knew that it was going to be a difficult experience. I knew it also because when I was a kid in school, I always felt sorry for the substitutes. They had a rough time. I think part of me was actually attracted by the idea of being a person in a very complicated structure, but being at the lowest level, because it gives you an, an unusual perspective. There are the layers. There's the superintendent and the principal and the, the teachers and the less tenured teachers and the ed techs and then the students, the bad kids, and then there's the substitute. Yeah, it's true. It, <laughs> it, it, is, it is like choosing powerlessness as a vantage point to view a situation. I thought that was brave, actually. It yielded nice results. Well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's not as brave as going to school and getting a teaching certificate and teaching every day for years and years. And I would never want to presume to be presenting this book as the work of a seasoned teacher. This is a person who entered into the circulation system of a number of schools and then was able to leave at the end of the day. It's a whole different feeling. Yeah, it's a little bit like Candide shows up at school, right? So. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Were you taking notes because your recall of dialogue seems to be very precise? Well, of course I was taking notes, but you can't take notes and write a book like this just relying on the spiral notebook kind of method. So I had a backup recording and found that the more I got into it, the more I thought the mission of the book was to present the way kids actually talked, which is you never can remember that perfect inversion or the way a kid just sort of blurts out a story in two sentences and, and stops with those perfect choices of words. None of that could I recall. I don't have a phonographic memory and couldn't do it. The other part of it, though, is that I certainly didn't want to make anybody unhappy and I didn't want to invade anyone's privacy, so I changed everyone's name and changed the names of the schools. Did the schools know that you were recording and that you were writing about this? I think they had a sense because in the uh, job application, I said that I'm a novelist and a nonfiction writer and I didn't disguise anything. Mm -hmm. Did they know I was recording? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't it's probably the know. best answer. So you, so, you, <laughs> so you can't play any of the recordings for us, in other words. That would be illegal. That's something I really enjoyed about the book, too, was the sense of the way kids talk. I'm a teacher as well, teach college freshmen, so a bit older. But I felt like you really captured something about sort of the current state of the American 
idiom, sort of youth idiom. And I was thinking about the famous story of Nabokov riding around on buses listening to school children when he was writing Lolita, trying to get the sort of cadence of their talk. Was it difficult for you to kind of get the hang of the way kids speak now? Well, part of the difficulty is that there's so much noise and that the threads are always being interrupted. Well, at least the norm of a substitute's day, and really of all teachers' day, is constant interruption. Not just interruption from on high from the PA system, but one kid interrupting another and then an ed tech interrupting to scold and then the teacher saying, okay, guys, let's get back to work. So there's just always things, things were in process they were quite interesting and complicated that then were cut off and then they would be resumed later. And so trying to convey that and, of course, compress it, if it was a real transcript, it would be ten times longer. So you have to convey all of this confusion but do it in a way that the reader doesn't go insane. There's a, a little passage that I really liked where a version of this happens. It reads, a sad girl showed up. She'd been crying because her boyfriend had broken up with her. Rianne hugged her and stroked her cheek. Seamus said, I could put up my kickstand for you. Then, imitating a teacher, he said in a low voice, that is not acceptable. I'll tell you what's not acceptable, said Artie. What if I whipped down my pants and took a shit on your grave? Seamus and Rianne left. Later, Rianne tried to take a nap lying in Seamus's lap. That's the whole scene, right? So yeah. it is very compressed and it feels like real time. And then when he said the, the thing about, well, I'll tell you what, that's the kind of thing that you have to record it exactly the way he said it, because no paraphrase would do. Exactly. The unexpectedness <laughs> of it was, and he was such an interesting guy because he was refusing to do the work. He was one of the kids who was really interested in mudding trucks, in, in watching big, powerful trucks, often with dualies or two tires in the back, take a leap off a hill and splash down in mud. That's what he lived for. And that's how he was passing his days. But he had all these odd kind of explosions of unexpectedness like that. As soon as he said that, I thought, well, this is becoming a book that's different than the book that I expected. All of my little theories are going to go out the window, and I am just going to become <laughs> a person who tells what life is like. Right, what's happening you know. right in front of you, yeah. Part of your style is an accumulation of detail, and you don't seem to like to do the commentary but you obviously do commentary by giving us the story the way you give it, and you're expecting us to put it together. Mm. It's an interesting style, and it works, but we were talking about this before you came. We noticed certain parts where you're very engaged or bothered by something, so then we think about it more. Or we get the argument a little clearer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just to take one example, there's so much observation of iPads. I think there's an iPad on like every other page in this book, right? Mm -hmm. And at certain points, it's clear that you disapprove or that you have some skepticism about the degree to which iPads are used or the way they're used or technology in general is used in school. I don't know if that was something you were aware was sort of cropping up so often or not. Well, it's one of those things that I had many thoughts about them. In a given moment, the iPad could have been a, and was for many kids a window out of the boredom of what they were doing. So it was a great thing. The iPads themselves, I thought, could be a really good addition. The problem was that they were used as part of a system of rewards and punishments. They were saying, we're going to give you this precious, beautiful, shiny thing made of liquid crystal, and you're going to be in possession of it unless you fall 
18 assignments behind, and then you're not going to be in possession of it, or it's going to be crippled slightly, and you're not going to be able to do the fun things that you want to do. So it becomes part of this whole other control system that kind of made me cringe sometimes. When I first started working for the LA Review of Books back in 2010, Tom gave me an iPad. So it was very much in this a system of rewards. Yeah, it was, I remember that. It was a and, form of control. And I'm still yeah. afraid he's going to take it away. Yeah. It's like Evan's been a good boy, and we're going to give him an iPad. You seem to have a high level of tolerance for the kids being bored and needing to find things that interest them themselves. Obviously, when you get to the subject of the Holocaust, your liberalism doesn't apply. That's a very interesting part of the book. I was sent to Hebrew school as a young child, and we were shown the films of Auschwitz being opened up. When she was eight. When, when I was eight. But it's a classroom of Jewish kids, so there's like, we're interested. We're like, this is telling us something about the world that we need to know, so we're really paying attention. But I could imagine how strangely irritating and all of the emotions that you must have felt when the kids are not paying attention to it. It was an impossible position to be in because... Of course, what you would like is for people to understand the massive horror of this thing. What they were being asked to do was to watch this YouTube video of Oprah Winfrey taking Elie Wiesel around. And it was really quite a good, powerful movie. And there were things in it that I had not seen and taken in because they go through the Auschwitz Museum. And and they didn't want to do it. And they were filtering it out, and it was 8.39 in the morning. And so I was trying to enforce their watching, but also knowing that some of the reaction was sort of protective because there was such an onslaught of horrific imagery. And the YouTube video had a flaw in it, so it repeated twice. Mm -hmm. So they Mm -hmm. went back and then watched some of these horrible images. Again, you know, it's a devastating... If you really take it seriously... You're not going to do anything for the rest of the day. This is a massive thing to take in. But what they were doing was just getting through the day, which meant actually looking at Tumblr blogs about Teletubbies and talking and making crinkly sounds with a water bottle. That's always fun. Just anything (laughs) to do to kind of avoid. But the other part of it was that the thing that was frustrating for me was not the studying of the Holocaust, because it's obviously one of the most, if not the most significant event in history, is it's the use of this assignment. They had an assignment packet that said, okay, you're going to look and take in this particular movie about the Holocaust, and you're going to read some books about it, and then you're going to write a kind of media studies analysis of which way of telling the story of the Holocaust is the most effective. So you're going to... And it, so it's just sort wow. of like, it's, it's even hard for me to describe why that did not work, but it was so not working. That day was just really not working. Mm-hmm. You don't give prescriptive answers as to what could be done to better some of these situations you encounter. What do you think could be a better way to have kids? Like at Holocaust museums, you go in, it's very dark and it's very quiet, and they signal to you what state of mind you're supposed to approach this mm-hmm. in. So maybe schools need to somehow surround the, surround the teaching experience with some kind of bumpers or something. Well, the Holocaust unit, and that's really sort of what it was, is like some of the other units. There was one where they had to read the things they carried by Tim O'Brien. There's a sort of thought that they're not going to pay any attention to nice stories. 
that what will grab everyone in the class is something really horrifying and violent. I don't think that that was the right approach. I guess for these kids, the way it was done, I would say to teach something that huge, you need a really good teacher who takes it head on. It doesn't say, okay, you're going to compare whether poetry or analysis is better, but somebody who takes them through this story of this tragic thing slowly and allows people to kind of digest it. Instead of digesting, they were simply blocking it off. No teaching has happened. No learning has happened. And in fact, it's very passive because you're saying, okay, we're going to talk about this thing, but we're not actually going to talk about it. We're just going to watch this movie. So I don't know. Mm. It didn't work. It wasn't a successful day. (laughs) Every class, this was fascinating to me and always true. The same nuggets of learning, not necessarily something huge like the Holocaust, but maybe it's the chemical reactions versus physical reactions and and an apple core or a piece of toast or something was one unit. Each class responds so differently because of its own ecosystem and the factions within it and whether they're irritated with each other, whether they're having fun trying to break the substitute. All those things are happening. And so the actual taking in of learning is very different class to class. And sometimes at the end of the class, the teacher next door, who was also doing the same showing of the Holocaust movie, his projector broke down. He said, how did it go for everybody? And there was this sort of kind of a whimpery sound that of, nah, you know, because what have, what have we just seen? <laughs> not a, not a nah, but a kind of a, you know, a, a sad, that was about the limit of articulation of, and maybe, maybe that's all that they can do. are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now back to our discussion with Nicholson Baker, the author of Substitute, Going to School with a Thousand Kids. Sort of continuing on the theme of what seems sort of like a buried polemic or, you know, sort of opinions that you might have held, and also sort of the idea of what kids can digest. There's a few parts where you sort of suggest that the school day is just too long, that actually kids are in school for too long, that at a certain point, you say no learning really happens after lunch. And I was just curious if you could sort of expand on that and think about, can you think of any real solution to that problem? The method that I tried to do is is say, you're going to read this chapter in which clearly very little learning happened after lunch. You're probably going to agree with me that very little learning happened. But even if you don't agree with me about my inner suspicions and thoughts and theories, you may be interested in knowing the way that things broke down. That lunch itself is so noisy and so exhausting. That's one reason why after lunch there's no... So the first thing to do is just to slowly live through the experience. And so you're asking me, what do I think should happen? Well, obviously, I think there's too much school. There are too many lists of things that kids have to learn, and they're being forced to learn very detailed things, like the parts of speech, for instance, way too early. And the school day is too long. Yes, the school day is too long. In the summers, the school day is non-existent. The world doesn't collapse. There has to be some acknowledgement of the fact that what has happened is the work has expanded to fill this six and a half hours because that's what we 
want kids to do. And we force them to get up really, really early, on the other hand, because in high school, everybody's supposed to be doing sports afterwards. So we have this incredible system of really systematic sleep deprivation. You start by bouncing around the county at 6.30 in the morning until you get to school, and then you take several hours to wake up, then you eat lunch and you get sleepy again, and the day is just essentially, I would say 98% of the day is completely wasted for a significant, not everyone, because they're, of course there's stars and sharp kids and kids who take it further, but for many, many kids in this main system that I was part of, their time is being wasted. And I think the, the first thing to do is just to, to talk, at least raise the question of shortening the hours of life that they spend in this place. The sleep deprivation complements the iPad then as a form of social control, right? As a way to keep the kids... <sighs> sleepiness has all kinds of... People deal with sleepiness by being kind of grogged out and sleepy, especially the first hour of, of the day. But then there's that thing where you're feeling so sleepy that you kind of want to jump out of it by making loud noises and wake yourself up, wake your friend up. So it also contributes to just sheer chaos. Mm-hmm. In terms of the structure of getting you ready for this job, I thought that was interesting and good in some ways. You took a class before you were slotted in. Everybody seemed to kind of acknowledge that this is going to be madness. Good luck. People came by at odd times to just offer you advice. Some of it was very good. Mm -hmm. Some of it, you know, not so much, but everyone seemed grateful. And whenever you said, yes, I'll come in, I felt like there was a pretty good system in place to help you given that it's an impossible situation and nobody was denying that. Right. It's a desperate, in the state of Maine, there's a shortage of substitutes. So the requirements were very low and that I just needed a high school diploma or a GED, clean record, good fingerprints, and then I had to take the class. If I took the class, I was golden. But the class itself was great, and the most inspiring person was this principal of an elementary school. I think the best school that I filled in at. And she said things that were so great. She said, use humor, not the hammer. Talk to them like human beings, and they'll talk to you back. And she had these great things that I've found to be, generally speaking, true. And so it's not as if this is a a system that was run by people who were— they were run, in some cases, by really inspired people. And some of the teachers I ran into were inspired and good. But the cumulative effect that I saw was harmful— But I felt like I was going through a training. I was a student in the school. And when this class was loud and the principal came to quiet us down, I felt that he was scolding me, which he was in a sense, as well as the kids. Well, it was better than The Wire. um, (laughs) You sent both your kids to public school in Maine. Was that kind of a political choice? I don't think so, no. Okay. You felt that the schools would be good enough, and they were. I went to public schools. Yes, I believe in public schools because I think it's very good to see all kinds of people. I went to an alternative high school, and that was part of what prompted me to write the book was that I had gone to a—although it was a public school, it was a very different kind of—and I watched both my kids go through this very, very traditional high school that's in our town, not in the district that I was teaching in. And I thought sometimes I wouldn't have survived this school. I would have looked at some of these assignments and said, I just 
I can do it, but I can't do it. There's something in me that would not do it, and I would have possibly flunked that class. Hmm. So when I had that thought, I then thought it would maybe be useful to see what a district was like. I suppose it's political. In, the, in order to have a political opinion, I think you have an obligation to figure out in a deeper way what's going on. I wish that some of the people who have very, very fierce opinions about what should be in the curriculum, for instance, cultural literacy list makers, those kinds of people, I wish that they would spend some time trying to get across even one of the things on those lists as, <laughs> as a teacher. Try yeah. it. Just see. See yeah. how it goes for you, you know? Yeah. Your greatest success with students was when you said, I think you guys are great. I think you're really interesting people, and you're going to do great. And they love that. And, of course, who doesn't love that? You seemed able to do that a good amount of the time. Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't work. This is not a chronicle of how I learned to be a good teacher because I don't think I did learn that. But I did find that almost any time I had an opportunity to talk to a given student, even if he was one of the ones who was really making my life miserable, if I had a chance to talk to him in class or after class or on a different day, he was a rational and actually often funny person with interests and things that he was wanted to tell me about. So the fact that he was making life miserable in that classroom was the fault of the classroom, was the fault of the fact that being in a hot box with 20-some kids and a bunch of worksheets and a person like me who's just sort of filling in is probably not going to work for a certain number of people. And that's yeah. that's the problem, not yeah. not him. Mm -hmm. I was one of those kids. I was one of the kids that just made every teacher's <laughs> life hell. Um, <laughs> and yet, look at you now. <laughs> it took a and, while. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, one of our uh, friends, Mark Haskell-Smith, also a novelist, also a nonfiction writer, right. wrote a piece for us at LARB on the writers born in 1957. Oh. Um, the year of the firecock in Chinese astrology, as he points out. And he decides that he wants to see if there's anything that the writers born in 1957, which he was, have in common. And it's Lionel Shriver, Richard Powers, Nick Hornby, Frank Miller, Anchi Min, Laurie Moore, but then also Spike Lee, Sid Vicious, Boy George, Ai Weiwei, you know, an interesting group of people. Mm. And he decides that what they share is... What all these writers share, then he takes you as the, he says, it's probably not an accident that the Soviets successfully penetrated the stratosphere with a massive phallus filled with rocket fuel in 1957 <laughs> as well. <laughs> and he says, what you all have in common is an aesthetic of transgression and playfulness, <laughs> which I think you wouldn't deny as at least part of your aesthetic. I'm wondering if the part of your attraction to this job that you took on for yourself was that you were kind of psyched that you were going to be transgressed as the substitute teacher. Yes, but that's awfully good company to be in. I mean, 1957, <laughs> I'm not worthy. I just, <laughs> the year of the firecock, I mean, I, I hadn't really put it all together, but that's great. And the principal I was talking about, this woman who gave us really wise words, it was said that she liked the bad kids. And that was really kind of a startling thing for her to say because her school was also a place where many of the 
kids with the worst problems of ADHD and autism were sent specifically to her school. I liked the bad kids. I found the bad kids fascinating because sometimes they were trying to break me, but really they were trying to break the whole school right. bit by bit. And also they were trying to register their objection to this thing that they had to do, had no choice but to do every day. Fascinating. And they all developed different strategies. Absolutely. And I understood that at some level. I mean, I couldn't have articulated it at the time, but I did know that the teachers liked me when I was being a pain in their ass. They really liked it. And the few who didn't, the real authoritarians, the few kind of small-minded authoritarians who really hated me, I just thought, what is wrong with you? You can't get with the program. Everybody else likes me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you were alone in that, right? The other teachers feel the same way, don't they? Yeah, except there is something that happens in a traditional school. By the time you get up to ninth, 10th grade, if you're a kid who's really causing trouble or has caused trouble spectacularly one or two times, you're slotted into a certain, you have to wear this label of being one of the kids who is making poor choices. And therefore, any infraction that you make, so quick are you given an in-school suspension, there's that whole cool hand Luke escalation of... Amen, brother. <laughs> did you did you do an in-school or did... I did, I did. Yeah, I got in a lot of trouble. I was banned from the lunchroom for an entire year. Where I, did you I, eat lunch? Back in the custodian's closet. <laughs> Oh, that explains so much. <laughs> you, you still like to do that. You still eat your lunch in a closet. I do. <laughs> Very comfortable there. You're a great defender of newspapers and of keeping the history of newspapers and of keeping newspapers. And I am very for that as well. I'm working on a book about Oscar Hammerstein II. And whatever it is I'm thinking about or researching, I go, what did the New York Times say about that in 1864? If you subscribe to the New York Times, you can go back to 1850. Mm -hmm. And it is the best bargain in the history of man. Looking up what people said on that day, what kind of context they were able to put it in, it's riches. It's just worth so much. And it kind of occurred to me that Maybe this is overthinking it, but there's a parallel to your style, too, because you don't like too much commentary. You like to just give us the facts, in a sense. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I just wondered if you could talk about your feelings about newspapers. Well, sure. I got involved in writing about newspapers because I was involved in suing the San Francisco Public Library for sending 250,000 books to a landfill and. It was sort of a life-consuming thing. And then this guy, Bill Blackbeard, a comics collector, came up and said, you do not know the real story. The story is at the complete wipeout of newspaper collections and large research libraries. So I wrote a book about that. Then in the middle of writing that book, I realized that the last surviving run of Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper and a couple other big things were being auctioned off. So I started a foundation. and My wife and I raised money and bought this collection. So I have all these feelings. And the reason why it links up to this book is that the newspaper of any date is a remarkable time machine. As soon as you start with the front page and then you start turning the pages, all the rest of history just recedes and you are there on that Tuesday in 1903. And it is everything. It's as if Tuesday in 1903 in that month is everything that you need to know about life. It's an amazing, remarkable, powerful thing that a daily newspaper can do. And I tried to kind of use that same energy in Human Smoke, which is about the lead up to World War II. But then when I was writing this book, 
it seemed again that this was what I could contribute is when you are in a classroom with a tiny subset of humanity, it just becomes large. That all of these people are as complicated as any human being. They may only be eight years old or, or 14 years old, but they are fully complicated, in some ways very sophisticated people. And the energy and the exhaustion and the exuberance is, is just flowing around. And so the whole day expands. And that's why the book is so long, is that each day, although it could have been much longer physically in pages if I had let it, each day feels like you've traveled through a world. The book is Substitute, Going to School with a Thousand Kids. The author's Nicholson Baker. So glad to have you in the studio. Thanks so much for coming by. Thank you, all of you. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and Questionable Moral Center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. Longer versions of our interviews with our guests are available on our website, thelareviewofbooks.org. Also, iTunes, Stitcher, and all other podcast purveyors and platforms. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. Thank you.